0: First of all, I would like to appreciate and uh, uh, give my special thanks to you all and those who are working behind this uh, webinar. Uh, Personally, I know that this is a very, very relevant subject and uh, um, you guys are doing a very great job to uh, affirm justice, peace and uh, reconciliation in our community and also uh, this is a good platform especially the virtual platform uh, that is preparing for those who are very really interested to do justice peace and uh, other kinds of uh, humanitarian activities that is a very grateful thing and i appreciate uh, all your efforts and all your academics and all your scholarship and god bless you all and god bless you abundantly for this uh, kind of things uh, in future thank you thank you Roshni. let's uh, bow our heads for prayer Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the God of peace. Help us to make peace and have peace in our relationship with others. Give us forbearing and forgiving spirit. Keep us from being quickly offended, control both our chamber and our tongue. Help us not to be quick to condemn what to do not understand. And when people think differently from us, help us to remember that they have right to. Right to their opinions and help us to treat others as we would have them to treat us. Help us to do all we can to bring peace in the world when we meet those of another race, color, political affiliation or religion. Help us to treat them as friends and not strangers. Help, it, help us to see our nation's greatness not in the light of exploiting other people but rather in serving them and bringing them to a place of liberty and wholeness. Help us through our prayers, conduct, words, actions and generosity to witness the day when all will know and love you. Let the day come when all will see your children worship you as their father. Especially, Father, we pray for this webinar and pray for those who are working behind this program and especially we pray for those who are attending in this webinar. Lord, enable us to do good for humanity and for justice and peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you,
1: Achen. Thank you,
2: Achen. So some announcements before we get lecture of today's seminar. We have a new name. So um, when we, when we did our first seminar, we were the Martha My Youth for Social Justice. So um, this name is inspired from all the verses in the Bible that you know allude to light and darkness, and we want to hold Jesus in our hearts, and and you know he is a light um, and. We want to follow the light. So this name is supposed, is intended to reflect um, that youth are are lighting the way to the future, towards our future. Um, And so I want to quickly introduce the Light the Way team. Um, So right now we have, um, working on the content, providing the content for you guys is me, uh, Sheldon Paratundia. Sheldon, can you wave? Is he waving? (laughs) Okay, Ashley Matthew. Ashley, if you, oh, yeah, and Ruben Ruben Matthews, and then our yeah. communications team is uh, Shreya Jacob, uh, Sneha Matthew, Feva Wilson Matthews, and Shobhit Raju. Um, if you guys are, if you guys want to give a wave too, and then we're also being guided, uh, guided, and and you know supported by. Achin, Reverend um, Monsi Varghese, Dr. Anil Varghese, and Dr. Chandramar Chakraborty. So these are our teachers and guides. So whenever we need help um, on any of these uh, concepts that are, you know, how to present it, um these are these are our teachers so we are you know this project is being guided by by great support systems um anil uncle and chandramanti they're very very knowledgeable about um history in india here in north america asia like they're you know i I learned everything I, i know from chandramanti she was my professor so um yeah so we're very very lucky and blessed to be able to have them part of our parish and as um as as, um, guides and teachers um, of this initiative, too. So I just feel so lucky and blessed to have have, uh, Achin and Anancon Chandamandi with us, too. Um, We are looking for more people with content and video editing skills to join the team um so you know we want to put out some some good stuff like we want to make infographics summaries of the lectures fun videos for instagram so please reach out if you are interested um and if you haven't already done so join our facebook group like the way discussion forum and sign up to have the seminar links and recorded content uh sent directly to your email so um Please be patient with us because you know we are a small team. We are all volunteering our time. We do have other responsibilities and obligations to keep up with in real life too. Um, so we're kind of working out the the you know all the hicks and the the all the, the you know the working through the developing a, a more uh, like a bigger system. Um, but um, everything eventually will you know be smooth and, and flow nicely. So um, yeah, so if you're able to sign up access um, these seminars. Um, and a note for everybody, please be aware that the seminar lecture portions will be recorded so that those who miss the seminars can still learn and, um, you know, get what they can from, from the lecture, but the discussions that we have in seminar will not be recorded. Um, yeah, that's just to ensure everybody's privacy and those who don't want to, you know, be on camera, um, they shouldn't have to be, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, We also wanted to go over the group guidelines for our seminars. Um, This was developed for this seminar space and also our Facebook discussion group. These guidelines are meant to ensure that this is an open open and welcoming space where we are open to learning and understanding the perspectives of other people and th- especially those who are most marginalized. Um, so we are trying to be active listeners and really, really try to um, engage ourselves and our own growth process. Um, So the number one rule I think that um, I would definitely, you know, want to stress about all of them is that this is a safe space and a judgment-free zone. So this forum is meant to encourage everyone to educate themselves on issues of justice. We are all learning together. There are no stupid questions, and this is a safe and judgment-free space for all. So please, um if you are concerned about you know you're feeling shy about any questions that you might have on the content or the material um please don't like if there's no such thing as a stupid question so um you part- the, our discussions are you can participate in the chat or through um through voice um or or send anonymous questions to ruben matthews so we'll get we'll get, there, in we'll get there but, um huh? are you joining separately yes i'm Sharon, can you turn off your mic? Oh shit. Okay. <laughs> um, thank you. Using the pause. So number two is uh, keep an open heart and an open mind. Um, so this forum is for people to learn and develop understanding and empathy for others. Particip- participants must keep their hearts and minds open to alternative perspectives and commit to being active listeners. Um, so yeah, just as we you know, learn the perspectives and um, of other people, those who are you know, not of our community, we need to keep an open heart and open mind. Um, the rule number three, youth speak first. So elder participation is always welcome, but this will be a youth-led initiative that prioritizes and gives space for youth to speak first. Um, So we're never going to, you know, discourage elders from participating because anybody who wants to learn should be able to, but they should be aware that um, this is primarily a space for youth um, to engage with other youth on the issues of our time. Uh, Number four, each seminar, um, is going to engage in the question, what would Jesus do? So we're supposed to think, um, you know, as we discuss these concepts and the issues of our time, what would Jesus do? Seminars and discussions will be rooted within Christian faith perspective and highlight Jesus' teachings of radical love for all. Number five, think critically about our history. So um, discussions should unsettle the common misconception that colonialism made us better. Um, We organizers, we strongly believe that colonialism from the on, we should we need to question colonialism from the onset in order to address systemic injustices around the world. So, we really do have to um, think critically about our history and, um, and understand how the past is connected to the present in order to build our future, is what the intention is. Number six um, work towards unpacking our privilege discussion should be intentional about thinking critically about anti-Blackness and anti-native sentiments in our own community. We will work together to unpack our own internalized anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism. So um, I think as um, privileged minorities, um, you know, a lot of us who, uh, Malayalis, who have come, our families have immigrated here, it, um, it, it typically means that, you know, we have good socioeconomic status so um, and you know we there are ways that we perpetuate anti-blackness and anti-native sentiments in our own community and in the larger Canadian community so um, we really need to work on um, unpacking our own privilege and of course we're going to do that together no one is going to be alone on that journey Um, yeah so um, number seven we're make connections to our own lives uh, discussions will bridge connections between what we learn in seminars to current events, our lives here in Canada, and the wider systems we're all in. It, we're in a part of. So we will try to bring in, um, you know, the current news as it relates to the content. We want to keep, um, keep these, sem- these sem- seminars relevant, um, so we will do our best to um, make dis- make the connections in the discussion portion as well as the lecture uh and finally the last uh guideline we have here is number eight connect intent to action so participants are highly encouraged to raise awareness and support grassroots organizations that assist black indigenous and people of color communities all around the world um, and so this um, every seminar we do intend to have an action item um, to you know that to promote and um encourage you guys to think about supporting so um, and also, eventually, down the road, as a group, as you know, a like the w- like the Way Initiative, together, uh, we might also discuss how we might t- like, as as a group, support um, a, a local organization um, in whatever ways we can. So yeah, um, and I and I really want to stress that these guidelines, like, as we do this work of learning and unlearning what we've been taught um we will get uncomfortable we will get uneasy a lot of emotions may come up um so i think it's really especially you know during 2020 during the pandemic when um so there's a lot of high stress situations going out in the news and in society in general we really do have to ask ourselves, um what if 2020 didn't break us but it recreates us um and restores us because um when we allow for growth we become better versions of ourselves so these guidelines are meant to facilitate and support each other's growth and learning so again this is not something we're we're doing alone we're doing it together Um, so yeah now um i want to take the time to um acknowledge some lives that um, are no longer with us uh, and say, you know, rest in peace and power. And I want to say their names. Ijaz um, Ahmed Chowdhury um, is um, a local Mississauga man. Um, he was on June 20th, 62-year-old Ijaz um, Chaudhry was shot and killed by police in Mississauga, Ontario, during a wellness check. He had schizophrenia um, and um, yeah, it, and then um, right next to him right here is um, Chantel Moore. So on um, June 4th, Edmonton police force officers fatally shot 26-year-old Chantel Moore, an Indigenous woman originally from BC, after they were called to conduct a wellness check. Um, and she was the one of two people to die at the hands of police. One of two Indigenous people to die the hands of the police, I should say, um, within the span of eight days. So, um, yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, um, the week before, Moore's death. Regis Courchene Paquette, over here, um, a Black Indigenous woman living in Toronto with Nova Scotia roots, died after falling from a high-rise balcony after her family called police for help. This was another wellness. Um, so yeah, we really do have to kind of, um, really think about, you know, what we really call the police for, I think, right, because wellness checks, um, you know, mental health issues. We, we do have to, I guess, ask ourselves if, if that is the police's responsibility to, to look after those kind of issues, right, and how can we better support, um, the members in our community who, who, who do struggle with mental health issues. Um, down below here is um, Elijah McClain. Um, He was detained on his way home from picking up an iced tea um, for his brother. And he was, he had a childlike spirit. Um, A lot of his clients had had said he lived in his own world. He was never fitting in. He just was who he was. And he had anemia and always would get cold. So he would wear an open ski mask. And so the police, a call was made because somebody thought he w- this this boy was he looked threatening um, walking down the street, and uh, the police used um, brutal force to to secure him. And McLean went into cardiac arrest on the way to the hospital, um, and his family said that he was brain dead and covered in bruises. Um, and I think for particularly for Black and Indigenous people. Um, I think we really have to understand how these like wellness checks and, um, and encounters with the police are are very particularly difficult for, for these communities to manage. Um, in, in Canada, out of 461 police deaths between 2000 and 2017, 70% of that number died with, died during encounters with the police and they suffered from mental health or substance abuse problems um 70 out of uh 461 police related deaths um of and that's black and indigenous people in canada so yeah we there's a um i think a lot to to figure out to unpack for for us to understand why these injustices are happening and that's what this space is for um and lastly i I want to acknowledge um praveen vargis um this is a this is a case that's close, that hits close to close to home, close to home for us because he is a Malali. Um, in 2014, he was found dead in the woods near his university. Um, and Gage Bethune, um, um, a white man with whom Praveen was seen with before his death, was convicted for first-degree murder. But September of um, last year, the judge overthrew the verdict in the case, and Bethune was released from jail and remains out on ball on bond, so he is walking free. Um, and Praveen was 19 year old. 19 years old when he when he died, and it, it devastated um, the Malayali community when, when the news came out about his death, um, because you know he looks like us. He looks like he looks like my brother. He looks like my cousin. He looks like the boys in my church, um, and uh, he looks like. He looks like the boys of my Samajan right so um when when the news came out um the police had um had said that Praveen was drunk and you know perhaps um intoxicated with drugs he was at a party um he stepped into he, he, he got a ride from an acquaintance and then he ran off in the woods after a fight they would not um they would not look further into the details of the case. They would not. Conv- uh, they were not arresting Gage Bethune, you know, so um, Praveen's mother and father, his family, his community, they fought um, to get his, his, his story heard and they fought for his justice. Um, his mother had said, um, I wanted the world to know that my son was not a drug dealer. He was not drunk. He died because he was hit. I did not want Gage to be put behind bars for his life, but yes, I wanted him to know that there are consequences to your options, and I want the law to hold him accountable. Um, and um, recently, lovely Auntie, um, who is Praveen's mother, she gave an interview um, uh, to, on Facebook for the, uh, the the group Malayalis for Black Lives Matter. And it was an incredibly powerful interview. Um, I, I want to play some of it um, because I think it's really important um, to recognize how, you know, Malialis think that this stuff doesn't affect us, but it really does. And I think lovely andy's experience, her family's experience, um, seeing Praveen, um, it really does hit close to home. So, you know, like she says in her interview, these are some quotes that I pulled out that I thought were very powerful. And I think all Malialis need to hear. Um, If any one of us Malialis think that it's not going to happen to one of us anymore, they are so wrong. So many people in our community think that it always happens to somebody else. We all live in a bubble and we are very comfortable in it. Um, she also said, we see racism in our workplace. But I think as Malialis, we have learned to put a blind eye to it or just laugh it off when you hear things. And as Malialis, we suppress everything because we want to be good in everyone's eyes, you know? But what I've learned in the past six years is that no matter how educated you are, how polite you are, when it comes to things like this, only thing that matters is your skin. And, you know, Praveen, Praveen is light skinned, you know, <laughs> so like, imagine some some darker skinned Malayalis, right? I think that's, it's Gage Bethune when he saw Praveen at night, he didn't, he didn't see um, he didn't know that he was a Christian. He didn't care about that. He didn't care that he was brown, that he was Indian, that, you know, mm-hmm. he was a model minority. He saw different colored skin and he thought other, not, not, not of my community, and he, he saw threat, right? And so we really, I really want to just point out these pictures because these pictures, you know, his family on vacation, his school pictures, his, his him and his sisters, um, <laughs> this picture of him posing, you know, showing off his kicks, this is, these pictures look familiar to us because these, this could be our family, you know? Um, so really, again, these issues do impact us, whether we whether we think it does or do, it doesn't, you know? They definitely do. And that's something I think the Malayali community really, really does need to understand. Okay, so before we get into the discussion about um, the movie 13th, I want us to kind of um, explore these concepts of power, knowledge, and discourse. So um, Michel Michel Foucault is um, a French philosopher, quite well known um, and very influential for a lot of academics and and, and theorists um, alike. So he he kind of developed this um, this concept of the power knowledge dichotomy. so, he argues that power and knowledge are impossible to detangle from each other. Knowledge is an exercise of power and power is a function of knowledge. Um, and so we really kind of have to think of these two things as related, power and knowledge, they go hand in hand, right? If you have knowledge, you have power. If you have power, you have knowledge, right? And the ways in which um, knowledge is communicated and um, and used um, as a as a as a way to control others is, is I think what we what we kind of have to dig towards um, and, and unpacking. Um, and another, so the way that um, this is done is usually through a concept called discourse. So discourse is about the production of knowledge through language um, and it's produced and guided by power and power relations. So those in power produce the framework for knowing and understanding the powerless. Um, and these concepts provide the framework for how we know and understand our world in our society. So if we kind of think about um, them as, as a cyclical process, um, so, you know, knowledge contributes to power and power, um, sub, um, not power subjects, um, an individual and and you know to control or you know whether whether it's through institutions or through laws, um, it, this is where you know people would be. The human bodies would be the subject, right? And discourse. So the way we communicate, discourse is how we come to understand the world. So the ways in which we um, we we talk. Um, you know uh, and 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 the language that we're using you know the our our framework i guess right like whose perspective we're taking that is what um is what connects these um all all three of these of these be, of these um beings so just to explain that and make that a little bit clear um it's uh The way, um, the way power is usually operates in discourses is through binary opposition. So, um, historically the West assumed cultural superiority was developed by building upon a history of artificial stereotypes about the East that, and these, these stereotypes became so pervasive that they were unquestionable. Um, so, you know, um, because the West was in power, um, they interpreted the East as having, as lacking government and civil society, prone to barbaric cultural practices and completely backwards and savage compared to Western refinement and civilization, right? so what what language what perspective are we taking um that establishes these bound these binary these binary oppositions of white black good bad us them civilized uncivilized the west the rest right so um the west and the rest is is a is a as a phrase coined by Stuart hall who's a cultural theorist um and what he means by that is it the way that um we view the West as being, you know, culturally superior, as as um, as more progressive, as more um, civilized, as more um, advanced in uh, society and technology. But um, and then everything else is the rest, right? So it's all other all other countries in the world. Um, the the East is um, they're all kind of. Cl- um, compiled together in under the category of the rest, right because that i the the idea is that it doesn't really matter because the the west is what's what what the framework is right that's that's you know they they hold the they it's kind of this idea of because they're they're the they're the center of the world i guess um, and so we we kind of have to ask ourselves how does power and superiority frame what we know of western countries and how it frames what we know of Africa and Asia, right? Um, Who controls a narrative about Black people and what binary oppositions do you know or recognize in your own life and community, right? So just to go over um, how how this operates, so power produces forms of knowledge, um, right? And then knowledge is used to um, modify and redistribute and stabilize power right and then power is established through institutions which control subjects and the subjects are are you know are are are, are constitutes the power so it's, it's a very cyclical pop process in which um, our language and our framework of understanding the world our our societies is established right so in what ways do we think our are are in what ways do we establish binaries and and um, of, of good bad us them civilized uncivilized superior inferior the west the rest right so um, again when we have to always ask ourselves what perspective is um, are we taking when, when we're hearing this story what perspective is the story written what perspective is history being told from and what perspective is the media presenting when we're watching the news right so again we, I think we always for the key question for this for this seminar would be, always ask yourself who controls the narrative about black people right um that's what we always have to think about and these are concepts that we're going to go over again and again so um if you don't completely understand it's okay we're going to you know repeat it and and clarify it as we go on because um these concepts are very central to understanding our historical processes right um so it's all about like we have to think about how power is established, and who holds power over others um, in our society. So the film 13th. Um, Okay, so the documentary by Ava DuVernay um, examines how the United States has produced the highest rate of incarceration in the world, Um, with majority of those imprisoned being African-American. And the title of the film is, um, refers to the 13th Amendment in the Constitution. Um, And she argues that a prison industrial complex um, statistically imprisons Black men disproportionately and allows for their disciplinary servitude and which takes advantage of America's Black population. And it's kind of, and she, she argues that it's a form of modern-day slavery. Um, the film addresses the injustice of mass incarceration and race, and how this disproportionately impacts Black and Brown people. Um, this is done through the following four points. Um, so this is, you know, a quick summary of of the film, uh, just the the main takeaway points I thought that the film brought. Um, so the first being. African-Americans have continually been portrayed as criminals in literature and media. So from the start um, of slavery, right? From the minute that they were taken from Africa and from the minute that film and literature came about, they, society has always believed and has come to believe um, that black people are inherently violent and immoral the more one sees this image and hears the stories of, of these, uh, that, that, um, that, uh, the more one sees images and hears these stories, the more likely one is to believe that blackness is criminal and corrupt. So the more ingrained in our minds is, is what I meant to see. Right? So like we believe it's true, the more and more we see it. Right. Um, and the 13th amendment um so quickly i just want to state what that is um and that i have this image over here too um neither slavery nor um neither slavery nor involuntary servitude uh except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the united states or any place or any place subject to their jurisdiction right so um the 13th Amendment, um, there is that loophole, right? Um, except as a punishment for crime. Um, right, is is that and that that's the key phrase that I think people that we have to
3: pay attention to. Um
2: because one thing that we have to keep in mind is that um when we think about slavery, um we have to realize that it was an economic system and the demise of slavery at the end of the civil, of the United States Civil War um, left the Southern economy in absolute tatters. So this presented a big question because there are 4 million people who were formerly property of people, right? They were property of, of, they were sl- of slave owners, right? Um, and they were formerly an integral part of the economic production system in the South, but now these people are free, right? And so what do you do with these people? And what happens to the economy? How do you build an economy that was built on free labor, right? Because if it's sitting on top of free labor, then it's just going to collapse, right? And so that 13th Amendment loophole was exploited immediately, of except as punishment for crime. Um, and so mass incarceration became a replacement for slavery. Since the abolishment of slavery, politicians have implemented policies that feed off the culturally generated fear of black people. And this disproportionately puts black people in jail where they are used as free labor. And this is a new
3: form of modern day slavery.
2: So what that means is, um, prisoners are like corporations have prisoners who have been put to work without pay as part of their sentencing so since the abolishment of slavery um politicians have implemented policies that feed off this media generated fear of black criminals which disproportionately puts um black people behind bars so that they can be used for free, free labor which then props up the, the the u.s economy so number three the 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 third takeaway point from the documentary would be that corporate interests shape the prison population. Um, So the the documentary kind of uncovers um, a, a coalition called ALEC, which is American Legislative Exchange Council. And it's a coalition of corporate interests like Walmart and Verizon and they introduce federal policies, which arguably result in putting black people and immigrants behind bars in the interest of profiteering from the success of private prisons, surveillance and prison labor. Um, And it's a bit scary because one in four US legislators have ties with ALEC and these corporations like Walmart, like Verizon, um, big 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 massive corporations they profit from the success of again private prisons surveillance and prison labor right um, they make money off of free labor and they, um, they they benefit and so we have to understand that history is not just stuff that happens by accident um, we are the products of history that our ancestors chose if we're white but if, we're, if you know we're, if we're racialized minorities if we're black we are the products of history that our ancestors most likely did not choose, right? And so, we're sitting here as a product of those choices. So, we have to understand um, the, the 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 context in which um, these these uh, corporations and and um, ways in which Black people are, are systematically oppressed. It stems from slavery is, is, the, is the argument that the, that's, that the film makes, right? And so ultimately all of this, um, all of this concludes to and leads to the dehumanization of African-Americans. So by portraying Black people as criminals, depriving their communities of financial support needed to level the playing field and developing policies that put more people of color in prison, and creating prison systems intended to break and punish instead of rehabilitating, Black people are consciously and unconsciously dehumanized all the time. Um, Yeah, so
3: let me just go over to see if there was anything else I needed to bring up.
2: Yeah, so quickly, I just wanted to mention um, these policies that um, put more people of color in prison, because that's a very that that that's extremely key, right? To understand is that um, these policies are what made made created the infrastructure for mass incarceration. So policies like mandatory minimums, um, which is taking discretion away from judges, the militarization of police, SWAT teams. The Bill Clinton introduced the, the the three strikes law and truth in sentencing laws, so must serve 85 of sentence of their sentence. Um, so these um, these policies have detrimentally impacted Black communities, and because it forced a whole generation of, of leadership of of men to to be incarcerated, right? So um, they're kind of the black community has that is left standing legless without any support because all of their you know their their men and and a lot of their women are are being put in prison right they're being locked up and so you're seeing broken families is a result of that and ultimately it's um, prisoners for profit right and so corporations are profiting from incarceration and so. I I want to kind of uh, want us to unsettle um, the image of prisoner and prison, right? Because when we hear the word prisoner, um, certain images and associations immediately do come to mind, right? Um, we think that prisoners um, are violent, angry, um, that they have mental health issues, right? That they're, they're poor, they're addicts, they're threatening, corrupt, immoral, right? Um, there's fear associated with them, violence, all of that, right? Um, but this documentary really uh, shows us that the people who are being um, put in jail are often, often, often wrongly convicted. Um, and they are, they are being, you know, because Black people are criminalized um, at excessively more than any other population in the world, they're they are thrown in jail more than any other population in the world right and so we kind of have like um i think it's really important for us to understand that um the the what what prisons and being locked up does to does to humans right and and what that does to to our psyche right and our spiritual well-being right because that that constant dehumanization right of um of of being told that you know of, of facing violence and and um you know because prisons in in the u.s and in canada they are meant to break you they are meant to they're not meant to rehabilitate you right um they are meant for to for you to be serving serving punishment not for you to get better right and to re-enter society as a, as a better person right and so um Dolores Canals um Canales or um She's a, she's a co-founder of California Families Against Solitary Confinement. And she's also a mother um, of, um, of a prisoner um, who's been in, you know, he's, he, he has no window in his cell. He's been in solitary confinement for years. And so she said, um, she said about um, the process of you becoming, you immediately become numb numb. That's what jail does to humans. That immediate dehumanization and sensory deprivation that nobody can really understand unless they have lived through it, right? Um, and so, I want us to ask ourselves: um, How would this constant dehumanization impact the human psyche? How do you think that would impact your spiritual well-being, right? Um, when, if that was you know, um, if that was our community, if if that you know the the, the black people like black people are um constantly being dehumanized when they are viewed as criminals when they are thrown in jail when they face um police violence at, at astonishing rates right um and so i think they what they they really start to internalize that um and and it, it really deeply affects and traumatizes their communities right um and i i i really enjoyed this I I love this quote by Bernice King, who's MLK's um, um, daughter or or, or granddaughter, I I don't remember, Um, but social justice is love applied to systems, policies, and cultures, right? So systems, policies, and cultures, right? So we, and I don't, we, social justice is is not being applied to our prison systems right now um, because of how much damage it does to the human psyche, right? We're not at, we're not, our, our systems are not based on restorative justice. They are—they uh, are created to um, to break you and, and to punish you, right? and and to lock you up, to hide you, to hide to hide um, those who hide the hide the unwanted from at the mar- to the margins of society to push them away. Um, and I kind of wanted to bring in, you know, um, another pop culture reference, right? Because I was thinking about when I was watching 13th about how, you know, that dehumanization, that sensory deprivation. And I thought about Azkaban in Harry Potter, right? And I thought about Dementors, right? Because they are such an oppressive presence in the book, right? Um, the, the book is, Harry Potter is written from it's Harry's perspective and we know how it particularly it impacts him, right? He feels cold. He feels lifeless. He feels like um, all the joy has been sucked out of him, right? That sensory deprivation is is so strong when you're in um, the presence of of dementors, right? And um, the name Azkaban was in part derived from a real life prison, Alcatraz Federal Federal pen, pen, Penitentiary, um, and and in part from the word. Abaden a Hebrew term that means place of destruction or depths of hell. So <laughs> Azkaban is meant to be like the scariest of the scariest places in Harry Potter and I think it's probably one of the most um popular prisons or or, or you know um prisons in pop culture, right? Um because it, it we see it in our it, in the story that it really does break the human spirit right um people who go in come out crazier right it, 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 we see how it impacted our characters like Sirius Black um, and Hagrid they they went and they they it, it destroyed it destroyed it destroyed them right and they never want to go back um, and that's because the mentors again it's that oppressive presence right um and and that's what prison kind of does to to the human soul, the human psyche, right? That sensory deprivation of being confined, being locked up, um, and 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 forced to be, you know, isolated in the dark. Um, and so they, I feel it, all peace, hope, and happiness um, is sucked out of the air. Um, and, you know, like Remus Lupin says, um, get too near Dementor and every good feeling, every happy memory will be sucked out of you. Um, if it can, the dementor will feed on you long enough to reduce you to something like itself, soulless and evil. You'll be left with nothing but the worst experiences of your life. Um, and I, I thought when I was watching the documentary, the experiences of some of those young black men, right? Of, of of the young man who committed suicide because you know he just couldn't take the experience anymore, right? He was he did absolutely no crime, absolutely nothing. Um, and he was beat up in prison. He had he and he he felt like he had no option um but to take his own life, right? And I think that's the most devastating thing to be um the, the most devastating choice to, to have to make. Um and I when you're in a place like like a prison, when you are a prisoner. I, I want us to really think about how hard it is to, to keep and contain your inner light, right? To keep that happiness um, because the presence being confined, that sensory deprivation, it just wants to suck the life out of you, right? And it wants to, to take your light, right? And Dementors, the Dementors kiss, um, this image right here, right? Um, that's literally what they're doing. They want to suck the light, the light out of you, all the good out of you, right? Every happy memory. That you hold so that you are nothing but a dark, empty shell, and that is kind of what I think the experiences of of of, a, of the black community of black people have been, right? Um, some quotes from the from the documentary that I that I pulled because I thought they were so powerful. Um Corey Green uh, create a context where people are afraid, and when you make people afraid, you can always justify putting people in the garbage can right fear is the biggest motivation we have with mass incarceration fear of black bodies because they they are seen again as criminal but we also, all we always have to come back to the question of who is framing the narrative right who um, how how have been how have black people continuously again and again been portrayed as criminal right and what how does the media how does the, the literature how does the 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 materials, the, the, the stuff that we consume, feed into that discourse, right? Um, that, and that, you know, and again, who is holding the power, right? Who is constructing, whose perspective are we looking at this from, right? Who And how is that influenced by power, right? Um, Dr. Jelani Cobb, if you looked at the history of black people's various struggles in this country, the connecting themes, um, the connecting theme is an attempt to be understood as full complicated human beings. Uh, we are something other than this visceral image of criminality and menace and threat to which people associate with us. Right. Um, so throughout, right. Like since the moment that they were taken from Africa, from slavery so present, right. Um, is the black people have been continuously being seen as menace and threats and they're, their revolutions their struggles right of civil rights it's always fighting back against that um stereotype right and and that's what um it, it comes back to again and again and again like they're viewed as threatening threatening bodies um every malika Cyrilla poet um she said every media outlet in america thinks i'm less than human i began to hear the word super predator as if it was my own name and wow like that you really have to think about, I think, how that might impact, again, your soul, your psyche, right? When you you hear the word super predator as if that was your own name, right? Because I think you really, uh, as a community, as, as a people, you start to really internalize that, right? And believe it, because every single source, every single person around you, the community around you, the world you're living in, is telling you that you are a predator, that you're a criminal, right? Um, and so she also says, So you have then educated a public deliberately over years, over decades to believe that black men in particular and black people in general are criminals. I want to be clear because I'm not just saying that white people believe this, right? Black people also believe this and are terrified of ourselves, right? Um, And I think that is so, so sad, right? Um, That systemically this, this, this narrative right of criminality and uh, associated with blackness um and that that has been the the, the at the core the, that, that that's the core struggle that black people have been facing for the past 400 years and that's why they they say black lives matter right and i think what we have to always think to ourselves is a two at the end of that statement black lives matter too because right now their their lives are are, are, not being, are not being mattered, right? They're not being taken care of. Their communities are not being taken care of. And so now they're demanding to be heard, right? Um, and to, to re- for, for society to start recognizing, again, who is, who is constructing the narrative? Who is holding the power and the knowledge? And, and, and whose perspective are we, are we looking at when we're consuming these images of, of black people and, and criminality, right? So what would Jesus do? Um, I think um, our understanding of um, an experience with criminal justice for a lot of us um, and it would be very limited unless we're directly involved or connected, right? Um, but I think it's, um, it's, it's interesting because the church is more closely connected to the experience of, of the prisoner, right? Because Jesus himself, um, was incarcerated. He was a prisoner, right? Jesus' incarceration parallels the life of today's inmates. Um, and he was seen by political leaders, um, um, the powers, the powers above as less than a lawbreaker. He was arrested and given an unfair trial, right? Um, and so Reuben, are you able do, to, to read, um, read uh, John 18
1: for us? Yeah. Um, okay. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he, went, and he and his disciples went to it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken out would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put, up, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with uh, its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, verses 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to to the world. Jesus replied, I have, I have always taught in synagogues or at the temple where the Jews came, up, came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Jesus said this when, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what, it is, what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest.
2: Yeah, wow. So, so that passage, um, that is a prime example of a broken criminal justice system, right? Jesus was unjustly condemned. He was framed and sentenced by the corrupt, um, the jury of peers, right? He was, Jesus was given the death penalty. Um, and once convicted and locked up, he was, um, you know, he was allowed visitors and he, uh, in Matthew 25, verse 36, he said, "'I was naked and you clothed me. "'I was sick and you visited me. "'I was in prison and you came to me." Right? Um, and so I think it's, um, it, yeah, he he, we prisoners who have done their time eventually, you know, return to their community. And I wonder if we can think about the resurrection of Jesus, um, as uh, as a parallel as a parallel to you know the uh, uh, to the returning citizen, a story of second chances, right? A story of rebirth and a story of redemption, right? Because that is what um, Jesus and God calls for, right? Restorative justice, um, because you know everybody should be able to return, um, you know, find their relationship with God to return home to uh, after paying their dues, right? Um, and when Jesus returned, he, he became fully recognized as the Savior and changed the world, right? He, you know, so returning citizens, if they're given the right resources, supports, and opportunities, they, they can be community changers as well, right? But not if our systems are meant to break the spirit, right, and to oppress the spirit. And so um, I think as we engage with this issue of mass incarceration, One of the most effective ways to connect um, to this idea uh, is to see them uh, the way God sees them, right? As his children. We have to recognize and acknowledge their inherent worth as, as, you know, people, prisoners, as people who are locked up. We have to recognize their inherent worth as God's creation, right? So Hebrews 13, um, verses three to five remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you yourself are in the body. Right? Um, and also uh, Luke, Luke 4, verses 18 to 19. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery for the, of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right so, I mean, what would Jesus do right <laughs> um, I mean yeah, so it's the Bible tells us very clearly what jesus's opinions on um on prisons were right, and so um now now a great time for us to to go into a discussion right so um when we um i'll read these questions out loud, and the way i, I i'd like these discussions this discussion to go is um have it be a a big group chat right so and people can participate in whatever ways they they feel